right, Genesis chapter 3. My goal is that we're going to read the whole chapter, <laughs> as is the case, because we're trying to get the biggest sections of the story in the Bible here, and, um, and we're going to expound this part of the Bible. So Genesis 3. Um, all right, let's do this. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. <laughs> For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took up its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was well, naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Adam, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Well, Adam said, the, the, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave the fruit. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the, 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 the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, hatred, hostility, war, between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, 
for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so, Father... We ask for wisdom this evening as we come to your word. And in the manner that we took communion just a couple minutes ago, the way that we came to you and feasted upon you and said you died to give us life, therefore we come to eat and be satisfied of you. Lord, we want to do that here. You are a tree of life. We want to come and delight ourselves in you. So I pray that your spirit would guide us and take us to you, to Jesus. Manifest yourself through my words and through your word, I pray. And Father, we also ask that you be with Jeff Cross and heal his back. Let the surgery recovery go well and speedily. Meet the needs of his family. And Father, we pray also a special blessing for their church as they also hear the words of this message, that you would illuminate it to their hearts and speak to their positions and help them find their place in your story. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whew, that was a long reading, wasn't it? <laughs> we did it, though. All right. So, guys, uh, welcome Jeff and his church. You should give a little clap for them. Yay! We're so glad you guys did this. Got the elephant out of the way. Let's go. Um, <laughs> in Genesis 3... We're now in part three of a series that we're calling History. It's his story. It's also the formulation of history. His story, finding our place in God's story. That's what this series is about. And we're taking this series in 31 parts, taking 31 selections from the grand story of the Bible and compressing it so that we can see the overall shape of it starting with the good garden down to sin, down to Jesus' death, and up back to a paradise restored. That's the shape of the narrative, and we're finding our place in it so that we can interpret our life, our decisions, our past, and our future by means of the story. Because every culture lives a story. The question is which story is interpreting your life and your decisions and your choices. So, and of course, we've said this every time, um, there's the American story, which has a certain pedigree. You're an individual. You don't need anybody. You're self-sufficient. And material things make you happy. So the more you get, the better you are. And this, is, this becomes evident in things like divorce. Okay, This is how you know that, that life changes based upon your story. Divorce. If you're a Christian, you're living God's story, you see divorce, it breaks your heart, and you think it's the most horrible thing that can happen in a family unit. Wrecks the marriage, wrecks the image of Christ in the church, wrecks the kids forever. Some of you guys know the pain of that. 
if you're in the American story, you look at divorce and you say, yeah, you're courageous for separating, for doing something that was hard and painful, and you're taking a courageous step to become the new and better you. There's a whole pond of fish out there anyways. So just go get a new one, and you're a better person for cutting off your weight. So that's the American story. And because you think of ourselves as individuals and being happier through gain, it's easy to say, lose this to gain something better, and I'm an individual. It doesn't affect anybody else. It's all about me and what makes me happy. So that's why stories are important, and understanding God's stories shape our minds, hearts, decisions, life as we're here on earth. So what have we seen? We come here in chapter 3 to act 2 of the story. The story has six acts, six parts, six scenes, if you will. And we come to the second. If you have your bookmarks, you, you've seen this displayed on the bookmark for you. What happened in Act 1? In Act 1, we saw that God is a king who establishes his kingdom. It was been established. In Genesis 1, what we saw is an all-powerful king who, with just his word, conquers the chaotic forces that oppose creation, conquers it with his word as kings do. All kings have sovereign authority with their word. Conquers it, establishes a kingdom called creation, and then makes man and gives the kingdom to man as his under kings to keep control of his kingdom. Then in chapter 2, we saw what exactly man's role was in the kingdom. And what chapter 2 shows is that Adam and Eve are priests designed to be put in the garden which is God's dwelling place, it's his temple, to push its borders out to the ends of the earth and to protect its borders from anything unclean from coming into the presence of God. That was their role. And this garden was to conquer the whole world, cover it so that the entire earth became God's temple and all of creation was will live happily ever after. So that's where we came from. But today you and I think, boy, it's a far cry from Genesis 1 and 2. What happened? Where's the garden? Where's the progress? What happened to our role as priests? Well, chapter 3 tells us. See, this is what we are at now in Act 2. Conflict enters the story. Like any story, it starts off happy, right? Peaceful. Then somewhere, a conflict arises. Um, I keep using this illustration because it's like the most recent, you know, fiction I've read. Hunger Games, <laughs> you have peaceful, happy life, and then the conflict is introduced when Katniss is called to go fight in the arena. That's conflict. Um, when some sort of ugly villain raises its head and the good guys have something to battle against. We're now at the conflict of the story. But! Early on, God gives us promise of resolution in the midst of this conflict. All right, we come up to this point and we see, No, Adam, you ruined it! It's wasted! But then God instantly says, But despite Adam's failure, he sinned, he took the fruit I told him not to, I'm delivering a little promise right here, just a little seed, literally a seed of promise and it's going to grow throughout scripture until we get to Jesus and we find resolution. The conflict has been conquered. 
So that's what this is. Chapter 3 is in basically two parts, okay? I'm just recapping what I just said. We first see man's problem, autonomous rebellion against God. The under kings are rebelling against the high king. And then the second part, we see God's promise, merciful restoration. So that's where we're going. From this point on, guys, the rest of the Bible is an epic story explaining how we get back to the Garden of Eden. We were exiled when we sinned in the Garden. This is what we were made to be in. Happy, at peace, perfectly satisfied with God. And man's sin exiled him, cast him out of the Garden. And we've been living as exiles in a wilderness ever since. And then Jesus comes and he becomes the answer to get back into the Garden. So, what we have here is a story of our return. Christianity is a return to where we originally came from. It's not like Jesus stepped on the scene and introduced a brand new idea. I'm starting a religion called Christianity. Follow me and somewhere you'll be happy out there in heaven. Absolutely not. Man was kicked out of the garden. And in Jesus, we find our way back into it. That's Christianity. It's the restoration of what we once were. So, that's the good news, is that in Jesus, we come back to this garden. Look at Revelation 21 and 22, and you will see a lot of the exact same images that are in the garden in Genesis 2 are there in Revelation. We are taking a long swing back, restoration to where we are meant to be, and we will make the garden conquer, God will make the garden conquer the globe, and that will be the eternal state called heaven. So, alright, let's, let's, let's move here. Um, I'm taking up all your guys' time with introduction. Let's look at now the conflict that has entered the story. What I want to do is look at what it is. We call it the fall. The fall of man. That's just a fancy term for we were in the garden and we're exiled out of it because of sin. That's the fall. We've lost something good. What does the fall mean? How did we get here? The second... Why did the fall happen? Third, how is the conflict of the fall going to be raised in resolution? What's God's plan to fix this problem? And finally, we'll close with looking at the application. What, what is our place in God's story in light of the fall? Where does the fall put us in the story? And how are we to live knowing that we have fallen? How are we to live knowing that? So that's where we're going, okay? So conflict is introduced. The fall, what is it? You can describe the fall in four words. First is death. The fall is death. We have been exiled from life, which was the garden. So you and I, well, before Christ, you're dead. The Bible makes that clear. Don't think, when you think of death, don't think of um, annihilation. You run over a squirrel, Happens all the time up here, especially, Spencer's telling me, especially in the 4th of July. It's like squirrels are dead everywhere because Flatlanders don't know how to drive around a squirrel. <laughs> it's funny, he was telling me, like, you start swerving around it and the squirrel's like, what do I do? <laughs> and dies. 
Just slow up, let it go, and go. But anyways, dead squirrels everywhere for the July. Don't think of death like that. The squirrel there stops moving, and slowly the natural processes start to, it might get scooped off the road, whatever. It starts to disappear. The natural processes take over. That, yeah, that is dead, but don't think that way about the Bible. When the Bible speaks of death, it speaks of separation. So, when I die, my spirit separates from my body, and lives on forever. And one day, when Jesus returns, that body will be reunited with my spirit. But that's death. That's the separation. Then back to, back to um, the happy reunion. <laughs> um, death also. So that's what happened here in the garden. Separation began to happen, not just with their bodies, because obviously Adam eventually died. Right? He's not sitting over in New York City, early and raining over there. He's dead. Um, separation also happened between us and God. Man was no longer able to just be with God. And you see when God showed up in the story in verse 8, it says he, they heard him coming and they hid. They ran. They were separated from a mutual relationship. That's a lot of our problem today. And then the third separation is the separation of man and woman, or man to man, woman to woman. Just relationship with people has deteriorated. It says when they ate, they realized that they were naked. What that means is that they had this self-consciousness and they were ashamed of something about themselves. Insecurity set into the heart of humankind. And insecurity is what drives us apart from people. Insecurity is what makes us act in the annoying ways that we do. And then, eh, they're stupid and they're stupid. And it separates us. It puts us apart. And you see that in verse 7. They seek to cover their own nakedness and not each other's. You see already a selfishness in the human heart. Death has happened. Humans are being separated from relationship. In verse 12, you see that Adam blames Eve for his rebellion. He doesn't own up to it. It's her fault. Separation. And in verse 16, it also talks about how there's going to be marital problems. Separation. So death happened, but by far the worst death is the spiritual death between us and God. When the garden man had this full, integrated, healthy, complete relationship with him, and it's gone. So we're all dead men, dead people. And if you're not a full, firm, assured believer in Jesus Christ, you're still dead. And some of you have no idea what it means to live. You're, you're, you're living empty. You're living unfulfilled. You're living frustrated. You know why? You have no life. So that's what the fall has done. Death. Number two. Second word for the fall. Autonomy. Autonomy means self-control, self-government. And that's exactly what the fall is. There are two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, right? The tree of life represented man's faith, his choice to come to what God said, here is life. So he says, because God said that's life, I'm going to it and I'm getting life. And God gave him life because of his faith. That's the tree of life. The tree of knowledge is a total opposite. It stood as an emblem saying, you can do what God said, or you can do what you want to do and come to this tree. So what did they do? We don't want God to be king. We want to be king. So they went to the tree of knowledge. Knowledge here is referring to the knowledge that it takes to operate as king or God. And they went to the tree of knowledge. Why? We don't want God to be king. We want to be king. Here we see God's under kings are in rebellion against the high king. Look at this in verse 5. You see this clearly. It says, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit from the tree of knowledge, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. That word God is Elohim in Hebrew, and it is just a, it's a general term for a ruler or judge. The serpent is calling God the king of the garden, as he was. But the serpent said, if you eat of the tree, you will be like the king. What? Knowing good and evil. The king is the one who makes a call. This is good. This is evil. You can do this. You can't do that. I make the rules. I'm king. And the serpent said, if you eat from the tree of knowledge, you will be the king. Being able to decide for yourself what is good and evil. You will be like him. See, man didn't just want to be like God. Man wanted to replace God. The under kings weren't happy as under kings. They wanted to be the king. The crown of creation wasn't happy with that. They wanted to be the creator. They wanted to replace him. So that's what autonomy means. That's what it means to be autonomous, self-controlled, self-sufficient. I don't listen to you. I don't trust your word as, as the rulership here. I'm the rulership. Discard, rebel, me. That is what Adam and Eve did. That is the fall. Death, autonomy, and judgment. You guys know this. The curse is what we call it. There's three curses here. First, we saw in verse 15 that he's putting enmity between the, between the woman and the serpent. What in the world does that mean? What we find here is that right here at the story, we now split off into two different characters that will take us to the rest of the story. The seed of the serpent are all those of the devil who decide they want to be autonomously ruled. We do what we want. We don't serve a king. We are king. Seed of the serpent. But then there are those who go seed of the woman. And they are those who trust God and say, he gives life. I listen to him. He's my king. They humbly submit. So what this means is that there will be enmity between these two characters. The wicked and the righteous will always be in conflict. And you see this throughout scripture. Israel. Pharaoh. Pharaoh oppresses Israel. But Israel ultimately gets to squash Pharaoh, right? We see this throughout Genesis. Cain and Abel. Cain, seed of serpent. Abel, seed of woman, right? Evil, righteous. What happens? Conflict. Cain kills Abel. You look at um, Ishmael and Isaac later in the story of Genesis. Same thing. Conflict. One's of the serpent, one's of the woman. It's through the whole story. And everybody in this room takes a side. We're all playing one of these character roles. You're either the seed of the woman or you're the seed of the serpent. And it all depends on which tree you eat of. Or in other words, it all depends on who rules your life. You or God. So that is part of the curse is that there's going to be this, this tension between right and wrong. Between I want to rule and God should rule. Constant tension. Second part of the curse. Gender problems. <laughs> you guys, um, guys, I understand. You totally don't understand women. If you think you understand them, oh, you obviously don't talk to them. Obviously. Women, I don't know what your problem is with us. We're only perfect. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but check this out. Verse 16 says, your desire shall be for your husband. We see that in the Bible. Women uprising against their husbands. Amen. Oh, yeah. No, but what that means is not like, oh, I love him. It means I want to 
command him. That's what um, Sarah did to Abraham in Genesis 16. Here, sleep with my maidservant. Ooh, okay, he gets kind of played. She's, she's becoming God in the relationship. And then he does, and then she gets mad at him when it all happens. Do you remember the story? There's just there's an improper balance of the roles there. Um, look, it also says, he will rule over you. Husbands are going to abuse their wives. We see that. I mean, I don't even need to use biblical examples of Abraham abusing Sarah. Oh, she's my sister. Take her. We see that in America quite enough, part of the curse. It also says, I will multiply your pain and childbirth. Not just pain and childbirth, no, it says multiply it. It's probably referring to death and childbirth, which happens all through history, or the pain of bringing up children. You guys were a major pain in your parents' side at times. You were too. Ah, thank you. This is so hard. And then, of course, in pain you shall bring forth children. That, that can refer to barrenness. There's me that pain of sometimes you can't have kids. And you see that all throughout the Bible. You see um, Sarah. You see Rachel. You see um, one of the other girls. <laughs> They're all barren. And God comes and miraculously gives them children. It's all part of the curse, though. And some, some girls in here may not be able to have children. And that's going to be a bummer for you. It's just part of the fallen humanness. And you might have to adopt or something. I don't know. So there you have it. Three words so far. Death, autonomy, judgment, and finally, this is, I think, the, the worst part of the curse. It's called disappointment. Think about it. The serpent promised pleasure. He promised power. They received, and they found that it was a bunch of smoke. Levi Weaver is a like American folk artist. He has a song called "Good from Evil." Um, the first line of the song grabbed me. This, this is what it means: disappointment. He says, sings. I often think that the worst of the curse has nothing to do with these clothes or childbirth, the bruising of hills or the tilling of earth. Notice he's using all those images we just read here in Genesis three. The worst of the curse has none to do with that. But, this is what he says, but the fact that the fruit didn't keep to its word, that's the worst part of the curse, is that we were lied to. And here we are thinking, be king is the way to go. No. Miserable. So, why did this happen? How did, how did they in perfect paradise get to this point? And how do we keep ourselves from their attitude of we want to be king and start looking poorly upon God? I see three breakdowns here that caused the fall to happen. Three reasons that the whole thing just crumbled down. And the first is the breakdown of Adam's priestly role. The breakdown of his priestly role. Remember in 2.15, you can look at it. Uh, God told him what their purpose was. He took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And we looked at how that word keep was a word used throughout the Old Testament of priests who guarded the temple from unclean people to come in. Adam's role as, me, as priest of the garden was to protect it from unclean things like... The serpent? Exactly. So what we should ask in verse 1 of chapter 3, instantly when you read the serpent was more crafty, you should say, wait a minute, why is the serpent here in the garden? 
And how was he permitted to stay? It was Adam's role to cast him out. But he didn't. Adam was given dominion over creation, right? He was the under king of creation. Did he exercise rulership over the serpent? Get out, beast. The serpent exercised rulership over Adam. So Adam broke down in his priestly assignment. That's one reason the fall happened. Second reason is that it was the breakdown of the authority of the sovereign king's word. Remember in chapter 1, it was God's word alone that conquered the chaos, brought creation. And we looked at the other stories of the nations around Israel. Their stories basically said that gods had to fight brutally and have um, intercourse with other gods to make creation happen. But God didn't do any of that. He, just his mere word and there was no resistance. Just happened and it happened. But now that word is being broken down. The authority of it, the serpent undermines, and Adam and Eve listen. Check it out in verse 1. It says, did God really say, did God actually say? See that the serpent's casting doubt about God's word in their minds. He didn't really say that. Look also at verses 2 and 3. Look what Eve says. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It's not what God said. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's not what God said either. In 2, verse 16 and 17, um, God said a lot more and a lot less than Eve said. <laughs> Eve took out this. She said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees. But what did God say? We may surely eat of every tree. So what does Eve do? She takes out the positive commands and restricts it. You may surely eat of every tree. And Eve just kind of, no, 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 well, we may eat. Doesn't look at the goodness of God's command. Look what she also does. She adds to his word. God never said anything about not touching it. But she says, we shouldn't eat of it and we shouldn't touch it. God didn't say that. He said, don't eat of it. So look at Eve, restricting his goodness and now adding laws that God didn't say, making him a rule maker and a bad guy that we have to submit to. This is the attitude of the world, isn't it? This, isn't that what the um, Muslims did, though? Like the I don't know. Sorry. And then she also said, lest you die, but God said you will surely die. See the difference? It's kind of like a maybe it'll happen. Maybe there's consequences. God said he will die. Mm. So that's a big problem right there. The breakdown of his word. Also look at what the serpent does in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Bold-faced lie. breakdown of the sovereign king's authority. Third way the fall happened, the third breakdown. Adam wasn't being priest, they no longer saw authority in God's, the high king's word, and now they don't even trust in God's goodness anymore. The king was good to them, and they don't even see him as good. They don't trust his goodness. See, the serpent acts as if God is being unfair, and he's withholding something good. You see that in verse 5? 
says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. The implication is God is withholding something from you so that you don't get what he has. He has power he doesn't want you to touch. The implication is like, and God knows and doesn't want you to know that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. He's not being fair to you, Eve. You should take this. He's being mean. So those are the breakdowns of why the fall happened. And we can be cautious of the same things. That, guys, we are temples. The Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Guard it. Let nothing unclean into yourself. And don't begin to undermine God's word, but take it, cherish it, and take what it says. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Just take it as is. And know that God's good. If you don't have it, because you don't need it. Psalm 84, 11. Life verse right there. All right, so here's a fall. And we see this, and we're, we're scratching our heads going, God, is this the end? You made this beautiful place. You gave me a mission to make this beautiful place take over the globe so that everybody can live with you. And now it's, you're exiling them from the garden. They're going to have to die in the ground and work and have tension with one another. And the serpent looks like he won. He took over the garden, kicked him out. Is this it? Is this how the story's going to end? We're on page three of the whole story. God answers these questions with no by clothing Adam and Eve. Really? Yeah, don't look like it. Oh, he's so nice. They're naked. He gave him something to wear. No. God's clothing them was his answer to say, you did not lose the earth entirely. You lost it now but it will come back. Because this is what the evil did in the Old Testament. It says, to remove someone's clothes signified their disinheritance of something. So if you're a father and your son was going to inherit the estate and he lost the inheritance, you would remove his cloak off of him. Notice when Joseph would have the cloak put on him, the brothers got jealous. It wasn't just because he's more fashionable. The, is, the inheritance was going to Joseph. So to remove clothes meant you lose the inheritance. So what God's doing here is that he's showing them that he has not given up his purpose for man. He's clothing them and saying, the earth is still yours when I get to restore it to you. Yes, there's hope. The conflict is here, but resolution is being planted. Look also at verse 15, where it talks about the enmity between the serpent and the woman, her offspring, his offspring. It's not just righteousness and, and wickedness. and We're talking about offspring here. The devil has offspring, and so does Eve. Who's Eve's offspring? Well, it was Abel, but Abel died. Then it was Cain, but he was a murderer. Obviously, see the serpent. Then there was Seth. He was the good guy. And from Seth came who? Noah. And from Noah came Abraham. And from Abraham came Jacob. And from Jacob came the 12 tribes of Israel. And from Israel came Jesus. Yes, Chris. <laughs> Jesus. And when Jesus comes, Matthew chapter 1 opens up the New Testament by saying, this is Jesus and here's his genealogy. And you know where it links him? It links him to Abraham, who is linked to Eve. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Furthermore, in Galatians 4.4, Paul actually says that. He says, Jesus, the one born of woman. Duh, I was born of woman too. 
No, see, clearly he's not just making a dumb statement. He's pointing out he's born of the woman. He is the promised offspring, the seed of the woman. And what does it say that that offspring will do? It says the offspring of the woman will bruise, a better, I think, translation possibly is crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will nick his heel. In short, the woman's offspring, who we, we've learned is Jesus, is going to smash the serpent. So did the serpent win? No! Conflict will be settled because Jesus is going to come as a resolution of the conflict and squash the conflict and say, enter into my presence. The globe is now my temple. The garden is restored in me. That's the promise of hope. A little seed of hope given to us that's going to come. And of course, we know that Jesus did come. Um, and those who believe in him are moving back into Eden. Um, think, think about this. Think about the words that are used for Jesus. Okay, We're dealing with the fall. The fall has to be raised back up to get back to the garden, right? When man desired to become God, we fell. But when God desired to become man, we were restored. God reversed what we did by becoming a man to restore us. And listen to the phrases the Bible uses for Jesus. In John, the Gospel of John, several times, Jesus and John both say, I, Jesus, will be lifted up on the cross. The fall, and he will be lifted up. When he rose from the dead, Acts chapter 2, verse 32 said that he was raised up from the dead. And then in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven, it says that he was lifted up into heaven. Do you see the point of Jesus' mission on earth? He went to the cross to be lifted up. He, he died so that he could be raised up. He went to heaven and was lifted up. He came to make the fall be lifted, to be raised back up, so that in him, man is no longer fallen, but he's being moved back into Eden, back to where he belongs. Back to where he can access the tree of life and reach out and have life. And so Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And Acts boldly calls the cross what? A tree. Jesus was lifted up on a tree because we lost access to the tree of life. He went to the tree so that we can come to the tree, come to himself. His life nailed to the tree so that the tree fruit and leaves and, and shade and life for us. Can think of certain words. <laughs> he has become our tree of life. It was blocked off here in Genesis, but it's opened up in Jesus. That is our restoration. It's in him. Everything's going back. And Romans 16 verse 20 says, um, I love this verse. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Direct quotation here from Genesis. God is going to come and the serpent will be crushed under our feet for those who are in Jesus Christ. So we're restored to Eden in him. We're accessing the tree of life in Jesus. We have life, but it's not yet complete. We're experiencing it spiritually, right? Those who know Christ are experiencing Eden in their hearts, but soon when he comes, it will be worldwide. So 
That's the promise of restoration. Now, the final question to ask ourselves is where does this put us in life? Knowing that there's a conflict and a problem, we're fallen creatures, there's death, autonomy, there's judgment, there's disappointment. And then there's this little hope of promise in Jesus to bring us back to Eden. Where does this put us? This part of the story rubs aggressively against the American story. What does America teach us? You're a great person, you have lots of potential, and you should separate your... You're basically a, a self-empowered individual who can make himself happy. So be king of your universe. Good. Every advertisement <laughs> says that. You look at all of them, it just like has a picture of people happy with some product, and it's like, be happy. That's basically what they say. This is America. But what the Bible comes along and says with the fall, as it introduces to you and I, you are not a self-sufficient person. You can't make yourself happy. Man tried that. That's the point of this story of Genesis 3. That's the point. It's, it, don't miss this. It's to see that when man, Adam and Eve said, we want to make ourselves happy, do things our way, be our own king, and make our own rules of good and evil, when they said that, they lost the garden. So don't miss this part of the story because we live in a culture that is trying to restore the garden. All of man knows we've lost it. Everybody wants to go back. There's something in our hearts that knows things aren't right. And so humanity is trying to rebuild the garden. America is just trying to rebuild an artificial garden. They're not letting God build it. We're building it. Yeah, man's happy here. But the problem with America's garden is that they're building it around the wrong tree. Building it around the tree of knowledge. The tree that says the garden is found in your autonomous rulership of your own life. You don't need anybody. You don't need any help. You might need people for sex. You might need to use them. You, they might help make you feel better, but ultimately you are the one to empower yourself. You come back to Eden. Personal and free sex life. Identity and possessions. Entertainment without having to work for it. Strength and individualism. The main message of America's story is get what you want. The tree of knowledge. That's the whole meaning behind it. So America promises a return to Eden through self. But God's promise promises a return to Eden through Jesus. And so the Bible story rebuilds Eden based upon the right tree, the tree of life, or Jesus. And it says, die to yourself. Give up your crown. Stop ruling your life. Stop being rebellious against God. You're not happy and you know it. So get off your throne, come and bow down to Jesus and give him everything and you will have entrance into Eden. That's God's story. It calls for us to die. You're already dead. What great news. To die from death. Yay! So that you can find life by coming to the tree of life, by coming to Jesus.
and being restored. So we're fallen. We're all in conflict. But those of us who found Jesus have found restoration. And we're waiting for the full end of the story to make everyone happy. And those of you who keep insisting on the tree of life, insisting upon I'm king of my life, I do what I want. You know what happens to the bad guys in every good story? That's happening to you. When Romans 16.20 says that God will come and he will crush the serpent under the Christian's feet, under the church's feet, that's going to be you under the church's foot. I don't know if it stinks, but it's definitely going to hurt. Probably wasn't the good time for a joke. <laughs> so therefore, guys, be dependent upon Jesus. Stop manipulating your empire. Stop being, being American. I mean, okay, patriotism, great. You know, this is our home. This is our nation. Go for America. But when I talk about the story and culture of America, you are not part of that. You're the church. You're called out. So be dependent upon Jesus and not yourself. Not things that make you happy. Not things you can find. Go to him. Give up life. Let him bless you with everything. Johnny, um, actually you guys didn't hear this. I guess it was in our private prayer before worship. He said that, um, and Jesus is every spiritual blessing. That's Ephesians 1.3. Everything you could ever need to become a person of Eden is in Jesus. And it's a man that comes to him with faith and says, I trust you have all of it. I pray that you bless me. I pray you make me happy. I pray you make me joyful. I pray you give me peace. I pray you give me strength. I pray you make me confident with who I am. All these things that we've lost in the fall is restored in Jesus. And I, so I don't mean just like sit here and say, yay, he's the son of God. I believe that. I mean come to Jesus with faith groveling on your feet and face and saying you are everything and I can't be anything until I get everything from you. That's what the tree of life is. It's a very low tree. Few find it and you have to crawl to get to it. Well, the tree of knowledge is like a mammoth mountain and everyone runs to it and says, look at that, snowboarding down and everyone's having a thrill and a fun ride. And, depend upon Jesus. God's story wins. That's why I, I, I'm so happy we get to see the storyline. I'm just going to sit here in Genesis for five years. and We're going to get to the end and see the seed of the woman, Jesus, crushing the seed of the serpent. So, do you want to be crushed or do you want to win? Jesus returns us to Eden. And that's where we find life. So, Father, break us of self dependency, autonomous rebellion against your rule. Give us faith not to believe the lie that we're happiest when we're in control. Grant us faith tonight to know and understand that we're happiest when you are king. And that's where the Garden of Eden is. It's where your throne is. It's where we grawl on our face and say, you're everything. God, there are some severe changes that need to be made to make you king in some of our lives. Let us know that the pain of crowning you king is nothing compared to the pain of losing the ultimate battle. So, give my students faith, give me faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.